So it was 15 years ago to the very day that I'm recording this. Um, I'm recording uh, this podcast on the 24th of June 2022. And 50 years ago, episode six of The Time Monster went out. And I'm just about to uh, take a look at it right now. Uh, I'm John Metsalia. Uh Welcome back to Perpetual Outsider Podcast. Um, many in which I explore some great classics from the 60s, 70s and 80s. Uh, quite quite a few Doctor Who stuff there, but also other you know game shows and comedies and variety shows as well. Um, don't forget, if you want um, uh, modern day uh, Doctor Who commentary, I'm on Patreon and they'll be available to unlock there. Uh, just go to patreon.com forward slash John Bensalia. And if you want to sign up, I would be eternally grateful. So uh, enough of that plug. I think it was a little bit better than the previous ones, but not much. But anyway, without further ado, let's go into uh, Back to Atlantis, where Joe's about to face off against the Minotaur. And I'll count the scene in five, four, three, two, one. Go. Yes, it works. Yeah, I was having problems with the, the DVD player. I think um, for some reason it, it didn't want to play episode five just now. I can't believe it. I, I managed to record all, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, half a dozen episodes uh, all in one go, um, which is why my voice kind of sounds a little bit, uh, like that. I'm kind of veering into Blakey territory here. So the story so far, um, annoying hippies has gone down into a underground catacombs to uh, confront the Minotaur. Joe's gone after it. There we are. <clears throat> there's there's Dave Prowse as the Minotaur. Dave Prowse who would uh, go on to become Darth Vader, and uh, and the Green Cross Code map. I always forget. I keep forgetting that I. Um, Dave Prowse as the Green Cross Code Man actually came to uh, my school when I was about 10 years old. And um, <clears throat> and he, act he actually answered my question. Um, you know, he said, oh, yeah, chap in the glasses, you know, what's your question? And I think, and he threw me a free badge and uh, also got a signed picture of, uh, of him as well. Nice chap, actually, from what I remember. Very, very tall. You know, when you're a pipsqueak of 10 years old, um, and he grew up to be a not particularly tall five foot nine uh, midget. Um, he was he was like a giant actually, Dave Prowse. But yeah, um, but a gentle giant. He was he was a, a very nice chap from what I remember. <clears throat> oh, good zoom in there. Uh, good, uh, you know, kind of. But it doesn't really kind of that kind of whoosh, like they do with the camera. They do it again in. Caves of Androzani Part 4 when the Doctor's on the run on location in the final part. And they do that kind of very fast panning shot. Um, but that actually ended up somewhere, but that didn't. It's, um, yeah, a bit strange. Uh, Hippius is about to buy it, thank God. <laughs> yeah, good riddance. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's he's not particularly funny, but I found it funny. Just the way he goes ah like that. Yes, I, I suspect that it's probably um, yeah, it's, it's probably more horrific on paper than it is on the screen because I mean, technically, it'd be cut to shreds. 
Um, yes, this Minotaur bit is not particularly well done. I mean, he he just runs at the brick wall and then just, for whatever reason, um, falls over. I mean, I, I, th I think we're meant to assume that, you know, he's he's got buried under a load of rubble, but that, that never really comes through. It's a clumsy bit of direction. But that's a good zoom. This is full of great zoom-ins and zoom-outs. You know, there was a, you know, the way it go, whoosh, ow, zoomed out of a crystal. Now, this is a better quality recording, actually, than I'm looking at here, because... Um, from what I remember, I think the episode, they found a kind of a low band off air recording of this and um, a goodies repeat, which was, I think, before it, I think. Or was it Top of the Pops? I'm not sure. I think it was about about the same time. It, no, I don't, I don't know. I've, I've got a feeling it was the goodies, which was the, um, the Come Dancing episode. And they managed to um, kind of boost the signal. They used the colour signal from that off-air recording and mixed it with the uh, the existing black and white uh, video recording that they had, which was of a better quality, I think. And so, the uh, yeah, the picture quality is a little bit sharper. But for some reason on the video, I, re I remember um, it, they... Um, I, I don't know whether it was my videotape or whether it was the master tape. I, I don't know. But it went into this kind of weird hiss, like... Um, like they were talking like, you know, bees in a jar, you know, those in this bit where the, the master's uh, promising a great great reward for the doctor in uh, meeting Kronos the next day, which uh, uh which as rewards go is not not really up there on the uh, on the uh, on the grand scale. And Galea now realising that uh, the master's not really um, going to fulfil his side of the bargain. I think she should have really got wise to that. She's quite, she's quite a tragic figure, really, Galea. You know, she's really, I mean, she's responsible for uh, for what happens later down the line. And um, we'll, we'll talk about that when, um, when, uh, when the time comes. Yeah, she's yeah she's referring to herself as the master thinks she's a servant girl, so I think she's starting to get the idea that the master's not really all that. <clears throat> ah, now this this is probably my favourite scene of the uh, of the episode. Actually, it's my it's my favourite scene of the whole story. Actually, it's probably a moment that you wouldn't really get in modern Doctor Who because. No, because of all that fast pace and, uh, um, you know, the instant action, action, action um, habit of what New Who is, modern Doctor Who is, sorry. You, d you don't really get time for scenes like this, but this is lovely. This is the, the daisiest daisy speech. I think it's such a lovely bit of writing. And also, it's a lovely performance. Actually, not only from John Pertwee, but also from... Casey Manning, she just kind of feeds off it, but look at her facial reactions as well. She really, she's listening intently, and I actually think she's actually quite moved by it. But John Pertwee really is the star here. He, this this is like um, a speech that is tailor-made for him, because um, Uncle Terence said that John Pertwee used to like these moments of charm, and this is a classic moment of... John Pertwee charm. It's 
it's just perform it's read so well. I mean, it could have been a really tedious monologue, but John Pertwee brings this story to life with such colour, with such flair and panache. And it's it's just a real goosebump moment. I mean, yeah, I've I've, I've seen it, I've watched it before and I've you know, I've I've had a lump in my throat when watching it and not yakking all over it with my demented burblings, but it's it's a it's a lovely scene, especially the way he describes you know the colours of you know the you know the sludgy you know the sludgy greys becoming you know shining white and all of that and um, and it's also a rare insight into you know into the doctor's personality you know this whole um, this whole concept that he actually can he can suffer from you know depression and uh, and anxiety like us mortals you know I mean. And then, and then he goes to his guru, and his guru actually tells him to kind of see the the joy in life, you know, kind of try and look at it another way, you know. And so his dark, you know, his blackest day becomes his best. And I think it's such a lovely idea. I think it's a real, it's a real poignant moment, um, and something that I think really only classic Who could provide, to be honest, because there's room to breathe in in. <clears throat> in a story of this length, you can actually sit down and, and have moments like this, which you can't always have in Monday Doctor Who. And any moments of sentiment in Monday Doctor Who are kind of swamped by, you know, this very kind of dumbed down over emotion, you know, with characters actually crying on screen and the, and the soundtrack is, is overcompensating. And for me, that, that doesn't really work quite as well. But this is, it's just too superb actors doing bringing a you know oh that's that's a lovely note shining light i love the way pertwee says that and i yeah I, I really like the way that the doctor says this i'm sorry i brought you to atlantis and joe says i'm not i, th I think it's lovely Oh, I think, I think Dalios is, uh, is no longer for this world. Bit of a lazy clonk on the head, though, isn't it? From the guard, I mean. Poor old Dalios. I mean, actually, how is the monster responsible for that? I mean, did he tell the guard to, you know, bump off Dalios deliberately? I mean, uh, I think, I think the guard could have tried a little bit harder, to be honest, but uh, there you go. Yeah, it's a shame that George Cormac doesn't really get much to do. I mean, all, all of it, it's a, it's actually a shame because the main kind of guest actors of um, of episode five of uh, Time Monster, you know, they, they kind of get forgotten about, really, in, in this episode. Dalios is bumped off here. He only gets one scene. Um, Susan Penn Halligan is briefly in... The introduction scene and um when she she runs in and then kind of runs out again um so she's not in it um hippias is mercifully bumped off at the beginning so i, I suppose it's not all bad news but it's kind of funny for yeah the, the main they do away with the uh, the previous main characters that populate atlantis and now it's kind of looking uh, a little bit sparse by comparison So the master's now now on the throne. He's now uh, 
now become the ruler of Atlantis, although um, not really for long, actually. I mean, it's like the, the shortest uh, rule of Atlantis ever, I think, and uh, even, even shorter than Zaroff in The Underwater Menace. Oh, there's a story to talk about. Um, maybe I'll try that very soon. I don't, I don't know. Lord Master doesn't really doesn't really have that ring to it, to be honest. I didn't see my brothers. Um, yeah, but there are there are some women there, Master. Brothers and sisters, but well, I don't know. Be a bit of a big family, I suppose. Yeah, it's like like I said in the previous. Uh, Episode. It's it's very good set design. You know, it's it's uh, it's quite impressive with the budget that they had, which was uh, which was pretty frugal in those days. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, we're coming up to the the big uh, the big destruction of Atlantis with Cronus uh, running amok. Um, again, a little bit a little bit bud giant budgie on wires. It's a little bit. Um. Uh, a, a little bit um, wonky in the in the, uh, the execution, but th this is a nice moment for uh, Ingrid Pitt when she learns of uh, Daniel's death. And she, yeah, she acts it well. You know, um, she actually she actually looks and sounds genuinely upset, and uh, it's, it's good. Yeah, that's what you get for running off of a master, Missy. Well, I didn't want to say Missy, actually. No. Missus. Again, he's, he, you know, he's just using the power of persuasion rather than uh, rather than hypnotism. It's, uh, you know, it goes back to, you know, what, what I was saying about Trenchard in an earlier episode. You know, he's uh, Trenchard in the Sea Devils. He's... Uh, he just uses the power of persuasion. It's like he doesn't really have to fall back on um, on hypnotism because uh, there's so many people that can do uh, the gullible job themselves. Uh, yes, here we go. Um, budgie on wires time. Yes, I think at this point, though, we're probably running out of time in the studio, I think. Um, yeah, I think Paul Bernard does his best with the lighting and the screaming and the falling of polystyrene debris, but... Um, yeah, I think they could have done it a bit better. But I think there's enough screaming and shouting to kind of convey the, uh, the destruction reasonably well, but uh, it is a shame about Budgie Kronos, though. <coughs> Excuse me. But yeah, I, I, I like um, what, what Ingrid Pitt does here. She kind of like bows her head. It's kind of like, you know, she's, she's the only one left standing amidst all the chaos. And it's completely her fault. You know, she's, she's a broken woman. How on earth is she going to rebuild her world? And that's something we can only guess at. I, li I, I like the way it's left ambiguous. You know, it's, um, she, she survives, but at what cost? So it's, it's quite unusual to actually kind of... Um, it, it kind of feels like the um, the big action, you know, the, the sort of the climax of the story is kind of ended there. And then we kind of get this um, this extra 10 minutes, kind of like a coda, in which um, 
you know, the, the Doctor and the Master are kind of having another face-off between TARDISes. And you go back to the whole time round thing. But it kind of feels like um, the Atlantis thing should have really rounded off the episode. But um, yeah, it's, it's very unusual structure, this story. <clears throat> Roger Delgado doing a really good job here. With, uh, he's, he's got um, even more of the, he shared the panto lines. And well, yeah, he does go a little bit over the top, but not too much. Not, you know, not so much as, you know, you, you think, you know, it's a laughable performance because it's not. It's a, it's a really good performance. And the uh, it, it takes an actual great skill to actually overcome the, uh, the limitations of pantomime dialogue. And, uh, of course, Roger Delgado just, you know, he, he had that unique ability to do so. <clears throat> Oh, he does. <laughs> or, or rather, Joe does, actually. She's the... Uh... Yes, yeah, it's, um, like Casey Manning says in the commentaries, I don't really know why um, why Joe was sometimes accused of being a bit, you know, sort of a traditional kind of screamy companion, because she's actually quite got quite a lot of gumption. She's got quite a lot of guts and uh, resourcefulness and intelligence to actually, you know, by now stand up to the master. And she'll do so again in Frontier in Space when she uh, holds out against the master's hypnotism. Um, she's, she's a, you know, you know, she's, her character, I think, really goes on a, on quite a journey. Ugh, I hate that word, you know, for want of a better word. But anyway, I suppose character progression, you know, she starts off quite, you know, quite naive, quite young and inexperienced. But over time, she kind of learns and, uh, and grows from that. And I think in stories like this, she's really come a long way from, uh, from her original early days in like Terror of the Autons. And of course, Casey Manning plays it to perfection. <clears throat> yeah, so even the doctor has got a, a bit of compassion at this point. You know, he couldn't couldn't bear it. So uh, he, he he wants to give the master another chance. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, it's Joe, and again, it was it's kind of like harking back to the demons again, of course, because um, Joe saved the day pretty much there. Because she took the bolt of uh, Zal lightning for the Doctor, and uh, which blasted back on Azal. So she was ready to make the sacrifice, and she makes the sacrifice here. <clears throat> Still with uh, her strange Atlantean wig. <laughs> so that's time ram and um the effects of that are um appearing in this very strange kind of hippie like dreamscape uh ve very early 70s that background is the sort of thing that looks like a the album cover of a you know of yes or somebody like that or you know whatever other hippie uh, hippie acts was doing the rounds at the time. Strange CSO there because Joe kind of fades into the background. She sort of fades into the um, the weird dreamscape there. She sort of almost becomes invisible. <clears throat> what if Joe ever kept those clothes afterwards? Whether she gave them to charity, I don't. I don't know. Maybe she gave them as a hand me down to her one of her kids. I don't know. <clears throat> Thank you. 
I'm not really sure whether um, the Time Monster is more highly regarded these days because it's um, it's not traditionally the most popular of the third Doctor Who stories. But I, I, I think um, the great thing about you know all of these stories coming out on DVD and Blu-ray is that you get a chance to reevaluate them and you get a chance to kind of uh, think about their merits you know a lot more because you know you've got the time to go back and revisit the stories and you know watch them at your own leisure rather than you know back then you we um we didn't you know there wasn't a repeat of this you know you'd only get to see it the once and you could only base on you know that kind of basis and i think you know from what i remember um the review books weren't very complimentary i think the discontinuity guide regarded it something along the lines of watching paint dry while being whipped with barbed wire um whether or not the authors actually experienced that but uh i mean given that one of the authors actually went on to write father's day is kind of like a, a somewhat damning indictment in my opinion <laughs> oh dear i'm not looking forward to getting to review that one if, if i do the uh, the patreon stuff he says plug plug um and the um third doctor handbook i think gave it like a measly two out of ten i think from what I remember, and um, the uh, they later kind of re um, reviewed all, all the Doctor Who stories, David J. Howe and Stephen James Walker in the Doctor Who Companion, and I, d I don't think they were exactly complimentary about it then. But I think now, I yeah, I, I can understand where they're coming from in a way. I think the reviews who weren't that keen on it. I can, I can, I get all the shortcomings of the Time Monster. But at the same time, I enjoy it. I, I do enjoy it. You know, it's, yeah, but there's probably about a thousand and one criticisms, criticisms that you could actually level at the time. Monster. But it's still a lot of fun. And like I said before, how on earth can, you know, sitting through a story with John Pertwee, Katie Manning, Roger Delgado, etc. How can that be a waste of time? It's nothing else but good, unpretentious fun, I think. And for me, that, that's all that matters in the Doctor Who story. So, yeah, maybe the tide is beginning to turn for the Time Monster. Maybe uh, maybe more people are enjoying it. I know it's not in the evaluated in the same league as the previous two stories that I've looked at, the uh, Deadly Assassin and Revelation of the Daleks. No, they're not quite as high. I know the Time Monster's not quite as highly regarded, but uh, I, I, th I think there are still people that quite like it, you know. Maybe all this comparison is just, you know, it's fruitless, really. Oh, there goes the master. Oh. And that's Ingrid. Oh, yeah, I've been talking over Ingrid Bauer, who uh, plays the other face of Chronos. Looking like uh, something out of Pan's people. But it's, it's quite an interesting idea that um, Chronos can be many things. You know, one minute uh, a giant budgie and uh, a killing machine of the next... Uh, a young woman with too much eye makeup. Baby Benson again with uh, cold marmalade sandwiches and tea mushrooms. Yuck! So we're kind of back full circle with uh, the, pre the previous production lock. I wonder if we're going to get another freeze frame of the Brigadier and Co. Doctor explained that you know he, he couldn't condemn the master to uh, eternity of torment. 
Yeah, I, I wonder if he would have done, like, um, a couple of seasons ago. And, of course, you know, it's interesting, this whole kind of Doctor-Master conflict. Um, you know, whether or not they're, you know, whether they're best friends, like, inexplicably, some Monday Doctor whoever seems seem to think they are, or whether they're deadly enemies, like, the, you know, like the big confrontation in Logopolis or, or in Planet of Fire, when... Um, the Doctor has complete control over the Master's fate in that. And, uh, oh, uh, oh, no. Uh, no, they're, they're coming out of their uh, time bubble this time. Really there. Yeah, in, in Planet of Fire, when um, the Doctor uh, really leaves it in a lap of the gods with what happens to the Master. You know, he, he just refuses to help. He's just a bystander. So we're coming to the end of the time monster, and um, yes, I rather enjoyed that. I, I thought that was a that was a good uh, good little story. On its own terms, I, I think it works. I think it it does have some flaws. I think maybe it's a little bit too padded out in places. Um, Hippias is a complete idiot. Uh, I think we could do without Benton and a nappy. To be honest, it's not really something that I really want to see. <laughs> Um, but it, it, it does provide some uh, Scooby-Doo laughter at the end. Uh, the Brigadier is just looking horrified. Probably quite right, too. But yeah, overall, you know, it, it does have, you know, it does have its issues. But overall, the Time Monster is is great fun. And um, yeah, I, I, I would recommend it. Just, you know, if, if you want a bit of escapism and uh, learn a bit about Atlantis and, um, you know, Bob's your uncle, really. And like I said, there's you know there's some good guest actors in there. You know, Ingrid Pitt, uh, Susan Ben Halligan, uh, George Cormack. You know, some uh, yeah good characters in there. And uh, of course, you know the regulars are in uh, on fine form as ever. So anyway, that was the Time Monster. Thank you very much for uh, for joining me for this commentary, and I hope to be with you again very soon. But in the meantime, thank you for listening. Thanks a million for listening. And I'll see you again very soon. And this is me, John Bensalia, signing off. Goodbye.